Some of you will know that we're starting a new series today in the Old Testament book of Esther. And uh, I think it would be helpful today to say a few things by way of introduction to set the scene to the book of Esther. Some of you may not know uh, anything at all about the book of Esther. So before we get into the story next week, um, we're going to just do some introduction uh, today. I hope that will be helpful. If, if we didn't do that, we'd be way too long today. So uh, I'm trying to be gentle with you so that we finish at a reasonable time. I'm glad in a way that we're looking at Esther now because it highlights the contrast that there is between this book, Esther, and the book of Ruth that we were looking at through our Advent readings before Christmas. If Ruth was a slow-burning love story set in a tiny, rural, nowhere village, Esther is more like a John Grisham fast-paced political thriller set in a foreign, powerful palace. But as we'll see, both stories, the story of Ruth, slightly quaint as that one is, and this one, which is different, (laughs) both stories ultimately point forwards hundreds of years to Jesus coming into our world. Let's uh, do a little history first of all, and uh, we won't be too long on this. The book of Esther, as I said, is in the Old Testament, roughly 500 years before Jesus was born. A very dramatic period in world history. In the East, the philosopher Confucius is developing ideas in China that are still influencing the world today. In the West, the Greeks are reaching new intellectual heights. At this point, there's already been almost 80 Olympic Games. And this is the era of philosophers such as Socrates. You'll remember Pythagoras from school, something to do with triangles. And Pericles, many of the foundations of science and maths and even our Western democracy go back to this time. 500 years before Jesus. But in the middle of this exciting global progress, the people of God are in disgrace. God had loved them and established them as a nation, as his own precious people, rescued them from slavery, given them his laws, Love them as his own. The idea was them, for them to enjoy God's blessing and to be a light to the world. But instead, like, like us, they, they, they were unfaithful to the God who loved them. They, they rebelled against him. And God graciously and repeatedly warned them, pleaded with them, sought to turn them, but the result of their unfaithfulness to God was devastating. They they never thought it would happen. They they thought they were safe. (laughs) They never thought it would happen, but the day came when they were carried off into exile. 
in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews now had no king. Their temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Their land was in ruins. The world was progressing all around them. And the people of God are defeated and depressed. This is a time for them of great shame, guilt, disappointment, as they find themselves scattered and in exile in a pagan country. I, I think it begs the question, are they even still to be called the people of God at this point? Or has God given up on them completely? Are all God's earlier promises to Abraham to bless the whole world through these precious people going to come to nothing? You, you may know that the Babylonian Empire was then conquered by King Cyrus of Persia who created what was then the largest empire the world had ever seen. Here's a map of it. It stretched from northeast Africa to northwest India. Massive empire. But King Cyrus was interesting. It, rather than enslave people that they'd conquered, Cyrus sent them home and paid for them to rebuild. He's very, very generous. But of course, it also strengthened his grip on his empire. The story of Esther is set in this period. Some Jews had returned home and the temple in Jerusalem had actually been rebuilt maybe 30 years earlier, but it would be another 40 years until Nehemiah rebuilt the city walls. So some Jews have gone home. Many Jews have stayed in exile. So you've got the backdrop. The basic plot of Esther is very simple. It is basically a huge, dramatic reversal. Um, people tell me that I use too many football illustrations sometimes, but I'm going to use another one. You, you'll, you'll hear sometimes in sport of a team that are 3-0 down at half-time and they go on to win the game 4-3 with a goal in the last minute. And we talk about it being a dramatic comeback at halftime. The fans were going home. They're fed up of another loss. And the second half so excited. It's a massive turnaround. And the team that were losing at halftime end up winning. But this story in the book of Esther is not sport. It's life and death. This is a brilliant retelling of a last-minute rescue from the jaws of certain death. And the shape of the book introduces this. It, all, all good stories have this shape, don't they? There's a crisis. There's a resolution. And, and in this story, there's a great celebration at the end of the book. The shape of the book introduces this major national catastrophic crisis. It introduces a totally unexpected half-time resolution and it ends in great celebration. 
One writer describes the Book of Esther as a carefully crafted piece of literary genius. And I think it's partly because it's written with such a mixture of danger and ironic humour that it's... it, you you couldn't say it's a comedy book because there's brutal aspects of it, but it, it's it's almost funny in in the in the reversal that takes place. The tension builds slowly at first. The first few chapters actually cover almost ten years as the characters are introduced: Esther, her uncle Mordecai, and the wicked general Haman. They're all introduced and the crisis slowly comes to the boil. The people of God become the object of Haman's vicious hatred. And it escalates into the terrifying threat of the Jews being wiped out by state-sponsored genocide. Laws are passed that on a certain date they're all to be executed but the middle chapters of the book rapidly cover only three days and through a combination of Esther and Mordecai's great courage and a series of almost unbelievable coincidences the tables are suddenly turned and it is comical how Haman who plotted to murder them all ends up being hanged on the very gallows that he'd built to hang Mordecai on. The book ends with God's people not being wiped out, but with them wildly celebrating their unexpected deliverance. This was like coming back from certain death. Such a profound reversal that the Jews still celebrate this story today with a feast called Purim. Two, two and a half thousand years later. Even now, this, this year I think it falls in March. Uh, even now the scroll of Esther will be read publicly during Purim. And the good parts are cheered. And Haman's name is loudly booed. Like a pantomime. One writer I came across describes the celebration of Purim as uproarious. What a marvellous word. Uproarious, that sounds like a joyful word to me, celebrating the sheer relief of escaping such a horrific threat. There's even one ancient rabbi who said, I think this is before the time of Jesus, he said, it is the duty of man to mellow himself with wine at the Feast of Purim until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. I'm not sure I want to recommend that uh, to us. But you get the idea that this is a profoundly joyful turnaround. In which the bully, Haman, gets his just desserts. And the underdogs, under great threat, are dramatically rescued and made safe. And celebrate their remarkable salvation. Here is something strange though. Over the centuries, although Jewish people have absolutely loved the book of Esther, Christians have been strangely reluctant about it and perhaps struggled to know what to do with it. 
For example, as far as we can tell, there were no commentaries written on the book of Esther in the first 700 years of the Christian church. Isn't that incredible? No commentaries at all, as far as we know, were published in seven centuries on this book. The famous reformer, Martin Luther, wasn't at all convinced. Well, no, I'll be, I'll be strong with that. He didn't think it should be in the Bible at all. He despised it because he felt it contained, I quote, too much pagan naughtiness. And he lamented the fact that Jewish people seemed to love Esther more than, say, the book of Isaiah or Daniel. He's like, why do they love Esther so much? I think there are a few possible reasons for this strange reluctance. I want to give you three. And the first is, the apparent absence of God. The first thing to notice about the book of Esther, which is really incredible, is that it is the only book in the Bible in which God is not mentioned anywhere at all in the whole book. There are no miracles or visions. There's no explicit prayer to God. There's no clear word from God. The book of Esther also is not quoted in any other biblical book. 66 books in the Bible written over, what, 1,500 years? And there's no other quotation from Esther anywhere else in any other Bible book. The author doesn't even retell the history of the Jewish people, where they've come from in the book. He, begins, he doesn't begin the story even with Jewish characters. The story begins in the palace of an unbelieving foreign king in a pagan country. It is as if God is either silent or absent because the author seems very deliberate in avoiding any reference to God or religion. And in history, this has led to various groups either like Martin Luther, dismissing the book as completely unbiblical, or some groups actually have, have added to it extra parts to make it sound more religious. You can ask me about that afterwards. There are some texts that have extra parts because when, when people read it, they thought this is not Bible enough. <laughs> the second reason why I think there might be a strange, strange reluctance is because the characters are so ambiguous and flawed, perhaps. If you, don't, if you don't know the story of Esther, come back because you'll enjoy the story. But the heroine, even, Esther, in this book, is a Jewish orphan girl who hides her true identity but is ultimately so good in bed that the king chooses her as the winner of Persia's equivalent of Love Island. She seems initially more like Kim Kardashian than Mother Teresa. 
And the whole book, in fact, is more like Game of Thrones than any kind of appropriate Sunday school material. When I was a kid, actually, in Sunday school, about 50 years ago, there was a song that we sometimes sung that was called Dare to be a Daniel. Daniel's another character in the Bible. Dare to be a Daniel. But no one, as far as I know, has ever written a song encouraging young girls to aspire to be an Esther. In Esther, the bad guys, like Haman, are certainly more obvious, but the heroes are, at best, ambiguous. And they turn out to be both victims of this oppressive culture that they live in and willing participants in it. And I think the third reason why there's been a strange reluctance about Esther is that, if I can put it like this, life in exile seems in Esther too much the norm. So for those of you who are new to the Bible's overarching story, the exile of the Jews is a big deal. We've touched on it already. This period was a devastating low point, a failure in the Old Testament. God's precious people being carried off into exile. But they weren't completely without hope because God had promised not to completely abandon his people but to bring a remnant of them home again. So I I think we tend to love those books in the Old Testament that speak of God's people coming home to where they were supposed to be. So we tend to love those books in the Bible that celebrate this return from exile. Books like Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And there are prophet books, Haggai and Zechariah. I, I happen to be reading Zechariah at the moment in my own devotions. The, what, what we love about that is that the story isn't over for them. It, it's almost as if the exile was like the discipline of a loving parent towards a disobedient child. We feel glad that God has not forgotten his broken people. They are still his children. Despite their sin, he's bringing them home. They're still his. He loves them. He's not forgotten his promises to them. And now by God's grace, things are being rebuilt. And they're worshipping God again at home in Jerusalem. But the book of Esther is biblically very strange. Because it's the only book in the Bible that's about the Jews who never went home. (laughs) Were they wrong to stay in exile? Why did they not join the party and go home? Had they just become too comfortable in Babylon? The book before Esther in our English Bibles is the book called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a man who also was in exile, but while he was in exile, his heart was actually in Jerusalem. We're told of him weeping and longing to go home to rebuild the walls of the city. We've talked about Daniel, who also was in exile, but who courageously stood up for God in this pagan royal court as a believer And was longing for the day when God's people would go home. 
it's quite surprising that the book of Esther doesn't seem concerned at all with them going home. We might be tempted to ask, what's wrong with them? Have they got so comfortable that they just don't want to? Where's their commitment to their identity and history? But the author just doesn't frame the story that way at all. So, on the one hand, Esther is a really simple, dramatic plot on one level. But it's also a bit awkward in raising some big questions too. I framed it like this because when we look at Esther in this light, we can perhaps understand understand why it might have been neglected. But I want to flip these three reasons over and suggest that actually these three reasons are the very reason why Esther is utterly and profoundly relevant to us here. Now, it's a work of absolute genius. So let's take these three ideas in reverse again. Let me ask you this question. As a Christian believer, do you feel like a minority in a larger culture that is sometimes not sympathetic Do you feel like a minority in a larger culture that is often, sometimes, not sympathetic? I've been using the term, the people of God, very deliberately in order to draw a line from them in the Old Testament to us. Now, the Jewish nation is, of course, very precious to God But the people of God are not now primarily an ethnic or or a national group. The people of God are a glorious, global, multi-ethnic, multi-racial group made up of all those in this world who are united together in trusting in Jesus as their saviour and following him as their king. That's not a nation, that, that, that's people united. It's, it's a kind of transnational group. We, we didn't read from Esther today, so we'll get into it next week. Read, read it during the week. But we did read that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is why Peter describes his readers there as a people belonging to God. This is first century now. Jews and Gentiles, he describes his readers as a people belonging to God. And he speaks of them being strangers and aliens in the first century Roman Empire that they lived in. In other words, as they trusted in Jesus, on the one hand they were united as the people of God, but on the other they also lived together as a vulnerable minority in another brutal first century empire. I I don't think this has been at all unusual in history for the people of God. 
it's easy for us to forget this because we live now in a time where so much of our recent Western history has been built on biblical values. Christians have often had social prominence and kudos and respect. But now social commentators tell us that we're beginning to live in a post-Christian society. We, we don't yet face the kind of persecution that some of our brothers and sisters around the world do face. But it does seem clear that we are a minority in a larger culture that lives by very different assumptions. To go back to the sporting analogy, it doesn't feel like we're winning, does it? It is as if we too are living as believers within a kind of empire. Sometimes the empire leaves us alone, but increasingly that empire demands that we play by its rules or risk the consequences. And our society remains this messy mixture of unbelievable progress and utter craziness. Sometimes at the same time, it's hard for us to know how to respond to that, isn't it? Should we fight to regain lost influence? Or should we should we just withdraw and keep our heads down? Or should we just become like the surrounding culture and accept its values? What should Christian believers do? Should we resist or retreat or join in? It's a good question to be thinking about. I've been really helped by... Um, a book by an American guy called Mike Cosper. I think it came out in 2018 on Esther. And, it, and the title is brilliant. It's called Faith Among the Faithless, Learning from Esther How to Live in a World Gone Mad. Learning from Esther How to Live in a World Gone Mad. I think Esther has a lot to teach us about what it feels like to live in exile. So one of the reasons the book of Esther seems to deliberately ignore the issue of believers going home to Jerusalem is because it's asking a different question. Can the people of God survive as a vulnerable minority, even in a brutal pagan empire? And is God with them even here? Can God save them? even here and amazingly the answer from the book of Esther is yes secondly do you feel something of our own moral ambiguity I, I think for us there are many issues that do seem crystal clear moral issues and that we rightly feel strongly about and we want to be clear on but alongside this isn't the truth that all of us to some degree are also deeply influenced by the culture we live in all of the amazing technology we have in our hands that has such power for good also magnifies our consumerism our addictions our prejudices. 
somewhere in our hearts we sense that there are deep flaws in our culture, but at the same time we seem to like it. We can't avoid being an integral part of it. Sometimes we might like to think of ourselves as Daniels, courageously standing up for truth, but perhaps most of us are more like Esther. Somehow both victims of our environment and yet willing participants in that environment. I think the book of Esther is hugely encouraging because it it shows us that God in his love and grace uses conflicted people like Mordecai and Esther to achieve his loving purposes for his people in this world. And and lastly, do, do you sometimes feel like God is absent? Sometimes when I talk to people, they, they tell me that they would love to believe in God and they would believe in God if God gave them extraordinary proof. But nothing dramatic ever seems to happen. It's also very ordinary. Is God at work in the mundane details of everyday life? Or are things ordinary because he's not there? I I think the ironic genius of Esther is that although God is never mentioned once in the whole book, He is the unseen prime mover behind the whole narrative. The author writes in such a way that it's almost deliberately secular. But at the same time, he leaves the reader in no doubt that God is ever present in all the various coincidences, in inverted commas, that seem to accumulate. And the whole story is being shaped by what one writer calls, I love this, the guiding hand of the great unnamed. I love that quote. The the, the book of Esther is all about the guiding hand of the great unnamed. Any one of the random things that happen in this book could be attributed to chance on their own. But when you take them all together as a whole, it becomes clear that God is at work through ordinary circumstances and flawed people to save his people and uphold his glorious promises. The book of Esther seems to sum up God's providential, detailed care for his people precisely because he seems so absent. The the book of Esther, for that reason, is so incredibly true to life as we experience it isn't it and it does teach us that God is not absent and as one writer puts it he does not abandon his people no matter how dark their circumstances or how hidden he may seem Let me give you a couple of things to take away and then we'll get into Esther next time. First of all, I want to say this. 
as, as we go through this book, and even, even here in the introduction today, I want to encourage you to put your hope in God's detailed, loving care for you. One of the other really striking things about the book of Esther is that the author never tells the reader what to think or how to respond. There's no interpretation. The, the reader doesn't tell you what to, how to respond to it. The author just uses the simple drama of the story. It's an invitation. The, the author writes in such a way as to invite you and I, to see by faith the hidden hand of God at work on behalf of his people. The story of Esther is therefore subtly asking, where does the real power lie? Is it with bumbling kings or evil megalomaniac madmen? or compromised believers. The truth is that God himself is the main actor in this story and that none of those other things can prevent him from working out all of the details to bring his own glorious plans and promises to full, perfect fruition. One writer sums this up well with these words. Even in the most pagan corner of the world, God is ruling all things to the benefit of his people and to the glory of his name. Even when his own people like Esther and Mordecai make decisions that come from ambiguous motives at best or perhaps even outright disobedience, God is still providentially working through those very things to fulfill his covenant. One of the things about the empire in inverted commas that we ourselves live in now in 2022 is that I think most people think that the world is governed by random chance. The book of Esther teaches us that that's not so. There isn't a vacuum on the throne of the universe. This world is ruled by the one true living God. Put your hope in God's loving care for you. And lastly, and we'll close with this, rest in an even greater reversal. The book of Ruth pointed us forward to Jesus. It was a poignant journey of two women from sad emptiness to overflowing fullness. Light dawns in their painful darkness and Ruth even becomes an ancestor of the promised Messiah, Christ himself. The book of Esther also points forward to Jesus because the story of this great reversal points to the greatest reversal that the world has ever seen. That our creator God 
should humble himself to become human and die on a Roman cross is a great reversal. But that his death should not be a defeat, but an incredible cosmic resurrection victory is a great reversal. That flawed sinners like you and I should be snatched from the jaws of death and given eternal life. Is that not a great reversal? The fact that God does his saving work so carefully and quietly in history and is not brash like this world operates, is that not a great reversal? And the fact that the empires of this world, whether the Babylonian one or the Roman one or the modern Western one, these empires rise and fall. They seem so powerful when in fact the kingdom of Jesus will outlast them all. Is that not a great reversal? Even in the darkest of times, the book of Esther teaches us that God can look after his own people put your hope in his loving care and rest in his son jesus who experienced the greatest reversal to give his people the greatest destiny imaginable let's go back to 1 peter chapter 2 i'm going to read these words again as we close i think they're a great place to land hear these words to your own hearts today but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Let's bow for a moment, shall we? And we'll pray, and then we're going to sing a closing song. Father, we thank you for this part of the Bible, your word. We thank you for the prospect of us looking at this book of Esther in this new series. And we thank you for the reminder today of your sovereign lordship over all things and your loving care over the lives of your people. Father, as we go into a new week this week, would you help us to remember that the ordinary details of our seemingly mundane lives are under your care 
protection and control. And would you point our hearts to Jesus, the great King who suffered and died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Would you point our hearts to him, that great reversal. And would you help us to live in the light of the fact that though we should have died, he died the death that we deserve so that we can know your eternal life. Father, we bless you for this. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.